Today's Wednesday, October 13th, and welcome to today's edition of 7 Investing Now. This is our show where we take a long-term investing perspective on several of the market's most relevant and interesting topics. I'm 7 Investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson. I am so excited about the show today because you've almost certainly been hearing about DNA sequencing, about, ge about genomics, about genetics, and about things that are in the future of the medicine. And we're going to be digging deeper into those today. Uh, I'm really kind of excited to, to kind of explore this topic at a much deeper level. And with me on the show is my fellow lead advisor, Max Chatsko, also our seven investing director of marketing, Sam Bailey. Max, let me start with you. You're up there in Buffalo. Uh, this is one of the most underappreciated research capitals of our country. How are things up in uh in Pittsburgh. Did I say Buffalo? I think I think I'm in the You said Buffalo, but the Bills are crushing it this year. So we should give them a little bit of credit now that Tom Brady's out of the uh, AFC East. But uh, yeah, things are going well in Pittsburgh. It gets darker now so early. I don't like it, but you know. Fantastic. Now, probably, probably a problem we're going to be having soon here in Houston, but it's a nice autumn day today, Sam, right? Are things treating you well, I hope? Everything is treating me well. See, I like that it gets darker earlier because it's easier to put my kids to sleep. So I will take, I take it. Very true. Well, Max, I'm really excited to be looking into healthcare on the show here with you today. Uh, we're going to be digging into genomic sequencing and we're going to be digging into gene editing and what's that's enabling in terms of future innovations later on the program. But I want to start at the 10,000 foot level. You know, healthcare is a risky industry that a lot of investors tend to shy away from, right? There's a lot of risks here. There's binary outcomes from FDA trials. There's changing technologies that could become uh, irrelevant in a couple of years. But this is a field that you embrace. You love to invest and you do it very, very well. Uh, kind of start us out at the top level of how do you think that we should approach as investors the healthcare industry? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because a lot of these companies are, are typically smaller. And if you're a pre-commercial drug developer, you don't have traditional financial fundamentals to interrogate. You don't have revenue, then you don't have earnings. You definitely don't have cash flow. You have big cash burns oftentimes, right? Um, but drug developers do have fundamentals. They're just different fundamentals. Um, so oftentimes it's you know looking at the cash balance and how many years of operations or quarters of operations that can fund, uh, looking at the number of collaborations. It's always important to bring in you know some deep pocketed partners uh, that de-risks the development of your programs and also provides some cash up front. Uh, and also, as those programs mature and get de-risked, uh, companies can earn milestone payments. So that's good. Keep the cash balance as high as possible at all times. Uh, and then also another fundamental is the number of programs. So there's you know discovery programs. Those are things that uh, companies are kind of kicking around. They've found their chemical compound they're interested in, uh, but they need to do more testing. Then there's preclinical testing, so preclinical programs. They're starting to maybe get some data to show to the FDA to say, hey, let us test this in humans. Um, so they're looking at animal studies and so forth. And then, of course, clinical testing, so clinical programs. So uh, looking at the number of pipeline programs overall, and of course, you know, uh, there's the different stages of clinical programs as well, phase one, phase two, phase three, sometimes another one uh, if you're unlucky. Um, so it's very risky uh, in terms of developing, uh, you know, a pipeline. Um, but you want to look at those three categories of fundamentals, cash, collaborations, and programs. And I actually have a, a different approach um, or other frameworks, I should say, for how I evaluate some of these companies. So uh, we have a graphic here I've made for one of my uh, showing a high level of, of my approach here. So what do I look for when I look at a drug developer, pre-commercial drug developer? I look for three things in particular. So first, I want them to be addressing pain points. The business goals are to unlock value or be a good partner, be a good collaborator. Um, if you're addressing pain points, then 
you have a tool and a solution that's not looking for a problem. You found a problem and you're developing a solution, uh, something we often see in academia, right? We have uh, solutions looking for problems. You don't want to invest in those. The second thing I look for are technology platforms. These are easier to scale and you have a greater potential to recover from failures. Uh, if we know the technology platform works, then you know if, if an asset or two or three fail, it doesn't necessarily bust your entire investing thesis because you know the company can recover or it has other pipeline programs coming. The third thing I look for are companies with durable advantages. So this is things that can, uh, attributes that can help a company navigate a competitive landscape. You know, how does it compete? How does the, the drug candidate you're developing compete with uh, those that are, your competitors are developing? whether that's using the same exact approach or a different tool, or uh, maybe something that's already on the market. Uh, and it makes it easier to also displace incumbents, so existing drug treatment. So maybe your drug's safer, um, more effective for various reasons due to the approaches you took. Okay, well, anyone who was not able to see the video really missed out on the great pictures that Max chose for each one of those topics. I per personally like the guy doing the squats for the competitive advantages, <laughs> showing how strong some of these companies can be. Obviously, Max, a lot of scientific research that you require for investing in this space. I think that's why you're so good at this actually. But okay, let's say that I'm an investor that I wanna start dabbling in, in biotech companies or healthcare companies or life sciences companies. And you know, typically the rest of the investing world looks at fundamental uh, analysis, right? We look at quantitative things like cash flows, like revenues, like DCF models. That's not quite the same when you're looking at a pre-revenue biotech company or a drug developer. Um, are there, and, and because of that, I think you see a lot of volatility in these types of companies, right? You tend to see when there's a good event uh, or a de-risking event, like you mentioned earlier, or there's a collaboration or a partnership or something like that, you'll see companies pop 30, 50, 100% on a day's news. How do you think about valuation in this space, knowing that there's not a whole lot of uh, really hard quantitative numbers to analyze? Yeah, so uh, we did a podcast on this a few months ago. Uh, so the nitty gritty of it is you do determine valuations based on uh, you create risk adjusted net present value models. Um, I'm still learning all the ins and outs of those because they are quite complicated. But it's basically a way to assign what's the probability of success that this asset in the pipeline is going to reach market and what might the sales look like and how long might it take to reach peak sales. Now, in the last decade from 2011 to 2020, uh, for every drug that entered phase one clinical trials, uh, only 7.9% actually reached the market. And if you look at oncology drug candidates, meaning those that are targeting cancers, uh, that number dips to 5.3%. So meaning, you know, 92 to maybe 95% of drugs, depending on the therapeutic area, never actually reach the market. Uh, so there's a lot of risk involved and those probabilities of success are very low. So when you're looking at these things, when I'm looking at these things, you know, I want to look at, you know, well, what companies might have a really good chance of outperforming the, you know, historical probabilities of success. And again, it kind of goes back to, you know, do they have a technology platform that's maybe been de-risked? It shows they can avoid, you know, design drugs that are safer, more effective, doesn't guarantee success. Sometimes it only bumps up the probability of success to 20% from the day they enter a phase one clinical trial. So that might not seem like a lot and it's really not, but it's four times, you know, the industry average, right? Um, so that's pretty, uh, uh, that's how you would do it from a technical perspective. Um, but yeah, valuations today, I've been at a, I've been in pained to see, you know, and explain that this is kind of unusual what's going on. There's a lot of, uh, momentum. There's a lot of excitement. I think the narrative right now overall in investing is, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic. We, we developed this new thing with MRNA vaccines, never been used before and look how well they work. 
Um, so there's a lot of excitement now for genomics and innovation. And overall, I think that's true. We're seeing, you know, uh, it's going to get a lot, you know, we're going to have awesome treatments coming in the next decade. But very important to remember, it does take time and we can't price in too many good things into these uh, valuations. You know, some of them are at $10 billion for some of these companies, very exciting, but then they announce results and sometimes they're really good results and you'll see the stock tumble like 10% because there's just too much good news priced in They're priced for perfection. So you really do have to be, uh, you know, cautious and, and think and, and be mindful of valuations. Uh, the price you buy in at, of course, affects your future returns. So uh, you do have to be mindful of these things. That's an interesting one too, Max, as we kind of close out this segment of the program. I won't say any names because we keep our recommendations behind the paywall for our paying subscribers. Uh, but I have seen that several of your recommendations you have gone on and re-recommended uh, in future months, which is, of course, an option for our advisors every month is to, to take past recommendations and re-recommend them. Are there any factors that, that go into when you re-recommend a company? Are you looking for the things you mentioned earlier about collaborations or updates on the trials or what goes into your mind if, if a company's going up for uh, it's too early to see revenue from commercial drugs it's not producing cash flows yet are you looking at it specific events when you re-recommend a company yeah well just to the left of me off camera i have a big cauldron and i throw in all these different things and i stir it up real good and then I see, what, I see what comes out and it's almost halloween so this actually is a good analogy um, so it's actually a combination of things, right? Sometimes the valuation is really, really attractive in, you know, relative to some of the drug developer fundamentals. Some of these companies have a lot of cash, you know, they're funded through 2025 or something. You, you never see that. They have a lot of collaborations. They have a lot of programs. They have a, you know, they're just kind of crushing it. They're doing really well. Maybe their therapeutic modality is actually pretty well de-risked overall. Um, and even if they're in earlier stages, you can look ahead and say, hey, you know what? In three years, this is a really good price, right? Um, so that might factor in. Um, and sometimes, yeah, de-risking events occur. So maybe a phase one readout uh, comes up and we know the technology platform a little bit de-risked, right? Or maybe um, that program is de-risked. We can assign, again, a higher probability of success to that. So uh, a couple of different things. Sometimes those are de-risked. And by the first of the month, I just I can't get on the scorecard again at a great price necessarily. So maybe I pull back or wait. It still makes it a pretty good investment. But uh, uh, so it's it's complicated. There's a lot of math that goes in there. <clears throat> Fantastic. Well, we want to give you at least a little bit of a sneak peek on the method to the madness of how Max Chatsko picks his recommendations every month. Uh, Sam, let me segue to you before we get into our second segment of the program. I mentioned subscribers just a couple of minutes ago, and uh, we are actually in the middle of, of doing a large uh, entire subscriber-wide survey right now. What have we found out from some initial results from that? You know, we are a customer-focused organization, and I know a lot of companies say that, but we really mean it here. We had a survey last year, and from that survey, our subscriber call was born. And that's one of the highlights, I think our members would agree, of a seven investing subscription. So we were you know, thrilled with the responses we got last year. We wanted, we wanted to do this again. You know, how can we grow? As the company evolves, you know, we want to evolve what our subscribers want. And it's too early to disclose the results, but we're already seeing more than a 10% improvement in our customer satisfaction scores compared to last year. So I'm so happy that our members are pleased with the service and I can't wait to continue getting these results. Yeah, I love that. Sam, how can we sign up for seven? If we want to be a subscriber and see Max's picks, how do we actually sign up for the service? You can go to seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. And I put the link at the bottom and I will share it in the chat as well. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Sam. Really appreciate the update on that. Uh, thank you to Doris and Renee Carell chiming in here saying that they did sign up and they're very happy. I really appreciate 
uh, the comments there. We're, we're very happy to have you on board too. We have seven top recommendations each and every month. Some are healthcare related, some are very not healthcare related, but it's always exciting to see what Max has up his sleeve every month from a healthcare pick. Uh, so let's move into segment two of today's discussion on seven investing now. We're going to be talking about DNA sequencing in this one, Max. Uh, and Sam, tell you what, before I let you completely get off the hook here, I have a question for you. Uh, it's about the Human Genome Project, <laughs> which is the very first time that the complete genome of a human being was sequenced. It was completed in the year 2003. Uh, it took a, a quite a long time, several decades and almost $3 billion to complete. My question for you is, where was the volunteer from? Which U.S. city was the volunteer from that gave blood that then contributed to the Human Genome Project? You know, I have to go. You have a lot of work that you give me for my job. So I'm going to go because I'll see you guys later. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Any guesses, Sam or Max? You can also guess as well if you'd like to on this one. Anchorage, Alaska. Oh, good guess. Anchorage, is, is he too far north or, or do you think it's even farther north than that, Sam? I'm going to go with Houston, Texas. I'm playing home field advantage here. Okay, the actual answer, before I really answer, let's actually put up the graphic of the actual newspaper ad for volunteers for the Human Genome Project. There it is. They're looking for 20 volunteers for this new international scientific research effort. This is pretty neat. Uh, you can see the phone number and the date down there at the bottom. 1997 is when this was posted in a print paper newspaper uh, that then unlocked so much information about the genome. The actual answer, Sam and Max, is Buffalo, New York. And anyone who was listening to the program, I totally botched it by giving away the name of the city earlier when I asked Max how Buffalo was doing. But that is where the uh, the original uh, anonymous, you know, the person is still anonymous, but it was posted up in Buffalo. Uh, really amazing. Amazing what we've learned in the scientific community from that project. And so, Max, let me use this to introduce the second part of the program, which is to show how far we've come in the two decades, basically, since the completion of that human genome project. Uh, Sam, we always promise graphics for anyone watching on video. Let's put up yet another graphic, which shows the declining costs uh, that it costs to sequence a whole human genome. And if you see over there, you know, the early 2000s, this is a log scale, by the way. This is not a linear graph. This is a log graph. $100 million over there at the turn of the millennium. You see that declining so, so quickly. Um, and, you know, Moore's Law, which is kind of the decline in cost of semiconductor chips, would predict that it would be declining not as quickly as it is. But kind of in the early 2000s, you know, we've got the shotgun assembly method, right? This is where you're kind of fragmenting and putting, you know, 20 to 50 base pairs together, trying to you know, one step at a time, assemble a genome. Uh, Max, you know, in the kind of the early 2000s there, we move on to the Sanger method. This is where you're doing reactions. Uh, you're trying to clone fragments and then use fluorescence to detect the fragments of DNA and then put them all together. Uh, we then kind of move and you see that, that real rapid decline in the cost there in the middle. Uh, this is next generation sequencing. This is where we harness parallel computing, which is the same thing that NVIDIA did with GPUs uh, for graphics processors and even for data centers late down the road. But this was able to do sequencing in parallel. This sped up the entire process and drove down costs. And then here we are now in the 2020 decade uh, where we're now below $1,000 to sequence an entire human genome. Uh, thanks very much, Sam, for that graphic. You've seen the incredible improvements. Of course, now it's economical to learn a lot more about a human being's DNA. Uh, Max, we are seeing a lot more innovation, even in next generation sequencing, though. Uh, I know that you and I 
kind of had drinks a decade ago and we're talking about how excited we were about Illumina, but there's even more innovative approaches to sequencing that are taking place right now. What can you tell us about those? Yeah. So, you know, uh, like I said, for things I look for in companies are they're addressing pain points. And sometimes those pain points are that, you know, the first generation or just existing generations of technologies, uh, you know, maybe they don't give us all a complete picture. They don't have all the data. Maybe there's safety and efficacy risks and so forth. Um, but for DNA sequencing, um, you know, that first approach, the short read approach is actually blind to about eight to 10% of the human genome. There's entire sections of the genome it can't read. So when we completed the Human Genome Project in 2003, uh, we actually didn't complete the entire genome of a human. Uh, there was only about maybe you know 90 to 93 percent of it that we read. Um, so that means you know in order to read those other regions of, of DNA, uh, we needed new tools, things that had longer read capabilities. So uh, we have tools developed for that, like from Pacific Biosciences, commonly called PacBio. Um, so they can look at much larger fragments of DNA um, and do so accurately. Uh, to get you know more coverage of those genomes. Also important to point out, you know, we're focused on human genomes, obviously, right? For therapeutics, and we're all humans here. Um, but you know, plant genomes or uh, yeast genomes or or you know uh, bacterium genomes, um, they're actually constructed a little bit differently, right? So you actually need long read sequencing to get the most accurate and complete picture of some other organism genomes. Um, but this is very helpful as well if we can put together you know data from Illumina. Um, that gives us a pretty good, quick, accurate read of a genome, but maybe we want a longer coverage. So, uh, you know, so we might combine it with a pack bio read. And there's actually some next generation approaches like nanopore, which is also technically a long read, but it's like longer, longer read, um, so maybe a couple of times longer than what pack bio can do. And the advantage there is because of the tools and the reagents and the, you know, processing power that they use, uh, you can actually get better with nanopore as you scale the machines down. So Oxford Nanopore actually just went public. We looked this up this morning. Uh, I lost track of that one. Uh, it went public in London. They did not come to the NASDAQ, unfortunately. Hopefully they have some ADR shares available soon. Um, popped maybe 45% on the day of its IPO. Lots of excitement for Oxford Nanopore and Nanopore sequencing. But um, they have a device you can plug in a USB port and actually sequence uh, different things. It's not very accurate necessarily. can't do everything. But uh, you know that's, that's in quite a big contrast to like Illumina or PacBio where, you know, their machines are the size of a refrigerator, right? Um, so, you know, Oxford Nanopore has been to the International Space Station, I think, is what I'll say to, uh, to end that. And nobody else can do that. Uh, that's pretty awesome that you're going up to the space station and doing sequencing up there already. Something else is pretty awesome is that we're kind of seeing more of a consumer-facing healthcare industry, right? This isn't just oncology or just being used by doctors and hospitals. We're now kind of seeing a new consumer diagnostic market that's developing from this, right? And, and a lot of that isn't whole genome sequences, right? We've probably are familiar with Ancestry.com and we're familiar with 23andMe. That's more of genotyping, not a full genome sequence. But we're also starting to see those large sequencing companies uh, an interest in kind of uh, earlier stage diagnostics. Uh, Illumina is one example of this, Max. You know, we've seen Illumina, like you said, short read sequencing, kind of one of the pioneers in this space. Now go back and trying to bring Grail back in-house within its corporate umbrella. This is something that it spun out a couple of years ago. It said, no, we want to bring back in Gale. This, Grail. This would be a much lower cost way of sequencing. Um, how important is the IP of sequencing technology? Because you mentioned PacBio a moment ago. Uh, Illumina tried to acquire PacBio a few years ago, and that was blocked by regulators in the United Kingdom. 
probably prompted in some part by Oxford Nanopore. But as you see these different approaches, I know that you're somebody who really likes to look at the foundational technologies. How important is the IP for sequencing? The IP is very important for DNA sequencing. Um, and that's how Illumina really built, uh, you know, its entire portfolio, really, right? It became a titan of DNA sequencing through a number of acquisitions over the years uh, to build out different, you know, beachheads in, you know, next generation sequencing or just very nerdy details of processes that it then incorporated into its machines later. Um, so IP is very important because, uh, uh, well, and again, that was why it wanted to acquire PacBio, right? It needed to maybe stake out a position in some long read sequencing to address some of the shortcomings in its short read approach. Um, you know, and there's also, there's a ton of lawsuits all the time, uh, always ongoing too. Like Oxford Nanopore has been very uh, quick to, you know, protect its IP in different international markets uh, pretty successfully as well. So it's usually, you know, sparring with Illumina or PacBio. And as you mentioned, yes, it did. It was the one that... Uh, Raise a raise a stink with uh, regulators and eventually nuked the uh, the takeover pack bio from Illumina, um, and so yeah, IP is very very important. Yeah, it's very interesting. And as we wrap this up, you know, we've got a uh, couple comments over here on the right. We, you know, Mike Fee is saying 10x Genomics is a company that we should be keeping an eye on for single cell expression. Uh, we've got several other players in the space that we've we've talked about in various ways of sequencing. I, I think my my final question for you though is Max is that we are learning more about the genome every year. It's not just reading DNA, it's the insight that researchers are obtaining from that. Um, we believe today that there's only about 1.5% of the genome that is responsible for the code that goes on for the creation of the proteins that we actually see manifest in a human being. We are a little, a little more cloudy on the other 98.5% of the 20,000 genes that are out there and what the DNA, the complete genome of a human being means. Um, this is research that's being sponsored heavily by Alphabet. We know that MIT and a lot of academic research institutes are looking at the genome, but are you seeing anything that really catches your attention in kind of the academic research taking place as we're learning more and more about the genome? What do you think this is going to mean for investors? This is a great question because we didn't even talk about this. And uh, just last week, there was a paper that came out um, about uh, those non-coding regions of the genome. Um, I don't know the exact numbers there. You said 98.5%. Um, so we used to think, ah, that's junk DNA. That doesn't code for proteins. It must not matter. But more and more, we're finding it does matter quite a bit. So some of those regions might not code for proteins, but they might code for things like microRNAs, or um, they might affect the expression of the genes that they become before or after in the genome. So we're linking actually uh, some of this to the differences between what separates us from things like you know chimpanzees, for example. And uh, we're finding that non-coding regions are unique to humans in a lot of cases, uh, and that actually separates us from you know chimpanzees and early brain development when we're still in the womb. And this might actually be what makes us human. So that's kind of an interesting takeaway. And it might actually um, uh, you know, be predictive of certain neurological disorders that uh, appear to be somewhat unique to humans, things like autism, uh, maybe Alzheimer's, right? And we can you know, uh, create non-human primates that also have some of these genotypes. But uh, so if we want to understand things like autism and Alzheimer's, we might probably need to look at these non-coding regions of the genome. Um, so this is an important discussion as well, because, you know, Illumina's machines or PacBio's machines or Oxford Nanopore's machines, we say they're either reading DNA, DNA sequencing, and they do that and they do that well, but they can also be used to read RNA if you design the right uh, 
tools for that. Um, you know, and there's different ways to use those for like maybe protein expression as well, or like Mike Fee brought up 10x genomics, single cell expression. So this is getting into a very important point for investors is that it's not just about genomics. You know, uh, you need to take a multi-omics approach uh, when you're looking into investing in the space or what's very interesting. And I actually recently had a pretty good uh, analogy, I thought. So we'll bring that up to end this segment. But um, there's an old Indian parable about uh, the three blind men and the elephant, right? Um, so one touches the trunk, you know, the other one's touching the tail, the other one's touching the ear, and they all walk away thinking that's exactly what the elephant must be, right? They felt the elephant. They know what it is. But each of these only has one part of the data, right? They need You need to combine all of these things, all of these omics, in order to get the most accurate picture. What the heck does this elephant look like? Um, so if we're going to solve some of these really perplexing challenges in health and disease, we're going to need to combine genomics and transcriptomics, which is reading the RNA, or proteomics, which is reading... Uh, proteins or uh, other things, metabolomics, there's lipidomics, there's fragmentomics, there's all kinds of crazy omics out there, uh, some of which I think are made up. So maybe Dan has a point about that. But uh, so um, it's not just about genomics, you need to take a multi-omics approach. Fantastic. Question from Doris Renee here in the chat is, uh, how, how does Ancestry.com tie in with all of this? Max, what part of the elephant are they looking at? <laughs> they took one hair out of the tail and they're looking at that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so Ancestry.com at 23andMe, and, and Simon kind of mentioned this a little bit ago, um, that's not full genome sequencing, right? They're looking at uh, certain parts of your genome. It's called genotyping. And, you know, I, I don't know if this is true anymore. I, I did 23andMe years ago when uh, they got away with a lot more. But, you know, they'll be like, oh, you, um, I don't know, you have just genes for being a sprinter instead of a, a marathon runner and like fun things like that. They could probably predict your eye color and, and different things and so forth. I don't know what they can get away with now. Um, but it's not a full genome sequencing because that would cost a lot more than uh, $99 or whatever it costs now. So, Absolutely. Not, not to be confused with a whole genome sequence. That's a great point. Also a question from Martha Berry West, if we could put that one up there, Sam, uh, saying that she is a subscriber, but not noticing that she's getting the emails regarding when these subscriber calls occur. Martha, we apologize. You should be getting access to that. We will double check uh, to make sure that you are getting invited to our subscriber calls. Those are on the third Friday of every month. We do send an email out to our subscribers. Uh, Sam, can I use that as a segue to talk about our subscriber call? What is this and what are we going to be talking about this Friday? This is my favorite part of our service besides our recommendations. So on the third Friday of the month, all of our lead advisors get together and you can ask all the advisors, any questions that you have about the recommendations. And it's really interactive. It's really fun. And I learn a lot. And I, it, it actually is my favorite part. That's not just the marketing person in me talking. <laughs> and it's one of my favorite parts too. And Sam, I think we also even have seven investing mugs available now, right? We always see those seven investing mugs everyone's carrying. How can I get a hold of one of those? It is, oh, I let me pull it up. It is we'll seven. It and... I apologize for putting you on the spot, Sam. I thought you asked if the shop was ready, not if I had it. There we go. <laughs> do we have the shop ready? That's my we first do. Question. And there it goes. So at seveninvesting.myshopify.com, you can now get your hands on one of these seven investing mugs in black or white or a notebook, t-shirts, you name it. So gotten a lot of orders and it's it's fun. Everyone seems pretty excited about it. And one last point, I believe that I heard that if you are currently a Seven Investing subscriber and you take our survey, giving feedback about your experience with our service so far, we are actually going to give you a credit that can be used to purchase a Seven Investing coffee mug. Is that also correct, Sam? That's correct. So you'll get a $7 credit and the mugs are $7. So you get a mug for free. 
Fantastic. Those were a big hit around here. We're excited to share those with, with all of our subscribers and anybody else who's not ready to join 7investing yet. Please use the link that, that Sam just used if you also would like a 7investing shirt or coffee mug. Um, let's go into the third part of the program here, Max, because now we've talked about kind of generally investing in healthcare. And we talked about DNA sequencing, which is kind of the foundation of this mansion that we want to build, the technology that's enabling so much of this. But as you mentioned earlier, there are a lot of difficult challenges to solve in the medical community. We're understanding more about the non-coding regions of the DNA of a human being, how they influence you know, the, the coding parts of the DNA strand, and how that impacts things like gene expression and, of course, anomalies and diseases that come from that. But now we've progressed from just reading the genome to actually doing something about it. Uh, if we used Illumina previously as the reader of the DNA, so say that Illumina is the Amazon Kindle that allows us to read a digital book, say that we notice that there's a spelling error somewhere in that digital book, and we want to go back and we actually want to edit that and correct the spelling mistake that we found. Now there are a collection of tools and approaches that we have to actually editing the genome and the DNA of human beings themselves. Uh, this is fascinating, Max, and I've heard a lot about CRISPR lately. It seems like that is really in the spotlight. Can we start by talking about CRISPR and gene editing, and then maybe we'll progress into some other approaches that you're interested in as well? Yeah, so now that we have uh, what are called genetic medicines, which means we can actually impact the DNA or the RNA. Uh, so in biology, there's something called the central dogma of biology. Uh, biologists are a little full of themselves, as you can tell, but uh, it goes that DNA makes RNA and RNA makes proteins. Proteins are what drive human health and diseases, uh, but DNA and RNA are the root causes of uh, health and diseases. So up until now, we haven't had genetic medicines really with um, you know any great deal of success. So we've been pretty much stuck with impacting proteins or the molecular messes they create downstream. Uh, so we've been stuck with like protein inhibitors or monoclonal antibodies, uh, things that impact and maybe reduce or increase the amount of proteins. So, you know, if there's a protein that's giving you high blood pressure, maybe we can design a, you know, a drug that goes and kind of um, silences that, right? It inhibits it. Uh, maybe that could have a, a good effect for you, right? Help you manage your, your lipid levels or something. Uh, but now that we can impact DNA and RNA, well, that kind of changes the game because now we can maybe silence the RNA or the DNA or maybe a precise correction of a mutation so that that mutated DNA or proteins that are causing and driving the disease never get created in the first place. Um, so CRISPR gene editing is, you know, obviously very exciting to investors here. Um, and, you know, so we have some of these first generation approaches that are coming out, right? Um, where companies are designing tools that go and impact gene expression in some way. Right now with first generation tools, we can't actually make a precise correction yet, um, but we can maybe disable the function of a gene that's causing a disease. Um, and we can also maybe use it to insert genetic material as well, though we haven't tried to do that in humans just yet. So much of this is so progressive. This is innovative science, right? And I don't think that it's fully understood by many in the scientific community. Uh, and one thing that you've been tracking that I've seen you write quite a bit on at seveninvesting.com is about the safety profile of about several of these approaches. Uh, Max, I know that you've been criti critical of the double, double strand break. Easy for anyone else who's had more coffee than I have to say, but this is something that, that we need to better understand. And it's something you've been critical of. Why is that interesting? And what can you tell us about kind of the current era of gene editing that we're in right now? 
Yeah. So the first generation tools, whether that's CRISPR gene editing or talent based editing or Arcus based editing, uh, all of those require making what's called a double stranded break in the DNA. Uh, so double stranded break, great name for a trivia team, really bad news, potentially, uh, if you're trying to design human therapeutics. So a double stranded break is one of the most traumatic events in all of biology. Uh, and because of that, we've evolved ways to quickly make a repair. So what, what does that mean? Let's back up a second. You know, we're all familiar with a double helix, right? It's the windy woo, 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 right? DNA, uh, double stranded break is exactly what it sounds like. We cut the DNA in half. Uh, and then we just rely on those natural DNA repair mechanisms in the cell to stitch it back together, kind of like Humpty Dumpty. Um, however, because it's one of the most traumatic events in biology, there's some problems, maybe some safety risks there, right? When we make a double-stranded break, sometimes those DNA repair mechanisms aren't really, they want to quickly make the repair, but sometimes they introduce errors. So sometimes they can randomly delete or insert genetic material where they stitch the, genes, the genome back up. Uh, so that can cause what's called indel mutations for insertion deletion indel um, that can maybe affect gene expression or create proteins that we shouldn't be creating that can be bad potentially um, additionally there's some uh, challenges when you make a double-stranded break sometimes chromosomes so big chunks of a genome can get rearranged and that can affect gene expression as well additionally all it takes sometimes we found this recently is that one double-stranded break can potentially lead to something called chromosome shattering <clears throat> where you get thousands of these chromosomal rearrangements. Um, so each of these different types of genetic alterations, indel mutations, chromosomal rearrangements, or chromosome shattering are each events that are found and uh, lead to and are hallmarks of cancerous cells. So right there, you know, if the foundation of your technology platform, first-generation gene editing, requires a double-stranded break, well, there's some long-term safety risks, potentially, you might be you know, helping patients to have a durable and safe potentially treatment, but maybe years later they develop cancer. So there's this interesting risk reward equation that we have to figure out, you know, if you have a disease that's going to be fatal and there's no other options, maybe that's an acceptable risk. Um, but there often increasingly are other treatments available, even though we call these rare diseases. Um, and some of them are very convenient, you know, with like alnylam has developed a couple of RNAi treatments um, and sometimes they only need to be dosed once every three months, and they want to eventually expand that to once every six months. And they have a new tool they just released uh, last month or just unveiled publicly, and maybe they can dose RNAi once every 12 months and get durable treatment. It's very safe. It's also reversible. Um, you know, there's no, it doesn't act on the DNA, so you don't have any double-stranded breaks. Um, so potentially, you know, and also um, RNA or Alnylam has shown with its RNAi platform that patients who have been treated with that actually do have, um, you know, healing of scarring in certain tissues, so they can actually reverse disease progression. So, you know, if you can check all those boxes with something that doesn't have this really big looming risk of the double-stranded breaks, uh, that might potentially be very attractive to doctors or regulators. It's pretty interesting to note that the FDA has not currently approved or cleared any phase one clinical trial for in vivo gene editing in the liver. All of those two trials that have been approved, but they've been approved in international markets, one in New Zealand and one in the UK. So that's kind of an interesting signal, I think, to investors that they need to take seriously that even if it works in the end, I think there's gonna be some significant regulatory roadblocks for some of these first gen tools. And you know, for good reason, we wanna make sure we're not uh, causing long-term problems because you can't undo it right? We can't stop giving you treatment if you were treated 10 years ago once. 
Uh, so these are very serious things to consider. Now, as you kind of set me up there before I got long-winded, uh, there's other approaches there, right? There's, there's scientists have developed other tools that maybe address some of those safety and efficacy concerns and maybe can be a little more precise. Maybe they can avoid double-stranded breaks. So Sam, we have a, a graphic. It's actually, we're going to skip the third graphic and move right to the fourth. Um, I forgot to bring up the other one. So the one that talks about this one, there are different kinds of DNA editing approaches. And I just kind of gave a, a quick overview of each. So first generation gene editing requires a double-stranded break to work. I just blabbered for a while about why that might not be such a great idea. That led scientists to invent and, and uh, discover a second generation approach, which is called base editing. So this does not make a double-stranded break, but it changes a single base pair at a time. Right now we can make A to G edits or C to T edits. So uh, if you ever watched the movie Gattaca, those are all the letters of the DNA alphabet. Um, so we can maybe change if there's a mutation that is caused by a single base pair mutation. It's called a point mutation. Uh, maybe we can change that back. So we can maybe have a precise correction uh, of that mutation and potentially for the first time cure a disease. That's something that's not really possible with the first generation approach. And then there's another approach. This is even earlier development. It's called, this is the third generation. It's prime editing. So this actually makes a single stranded break. Um, oops, looks like I forgot to wrap that up there at the end, but um, it supplies the DNA repair mechanism. So um, it provides an enzyme that actually exactly tells the cell how to stitch the genome, genome back together. Now, so all of those overcome that double-stranded break limitation, but they do have other challenges themselves. Um, we're going to keep this at a high level today, but, um, you know, so just because maybe third generation prime editing eventually moves into clinical trials doesn't mean that second generation is necessarily obsolete um, and vice versa. Some of those, you know, second gen can do things better than third gen. Third gen can do some things better than second and first gen. I do the, consider the double-stranded break to be potentially a foundational technical risk. Um, this is actually the topic of my advisor update this month. Uh, which is a premium article we publish for our members. Um, I'm talking about the categories of risks when we're looking at uh, pre-commercial drug developers. We often say, oh, you know, it's so risky. Drug development's risky. It's binary. Yeah, but I always try to be a little more precise. So there's actually four different categories of risks. First is uh, technical foundational risks. So those are things that can blow up your entire approach, all of your pipeline. You have to retool, pivot, move on to something else. That's what a double-stranded break is. It's a, tech a foundational technical risk. Then there's drug development risk. So, you know, you move through phase one, phase two, phase three. Maybe your drug's not actually safe. Maybe it's not actually effective. Those are the typically what we talk about when we say, oh, it's risky. We're talking about development risks. There's also regulatory risks. You know, a drug developer and regulators might not always see eye to eye on things. Um, regulators might want more data. They might make you expand a trial. They might make you reconduct a trial. All things that can delay your timeline for getting to market if they let you get to market at all. And then there's commercial risk. So now you have a drug approved, it's on the market. Well, you still have to navigate a lot of other complicated factors. You have to get insurance coverage, right? We've seen how that can maybe sometimes go off the rails if you can't sign up enough insurance uh, uh, payers quickly enough. Uh, you also have to navigate competitive landscapes. There's other drugs on the market for all of these uh, diseases. Um, is yours going to be more effective or not? So all of those things can be overcome, but I kind of view these risks as like... Um, a game of Jenga. You played Jenga before, right? The top block. Yeah. So every once in a while, you know, uh, you remove one block at a time, right? And the, if you pull the one block out that makes the whole tower fall, you lose the game. Um, now in the game, you know, one of the two of the easiest blocks to pull out are the two on the very bottom. 
and you can leave that one in the middle on the very bottom level intact. But obviously you can't pull that out because the whole tower would fall, right? So foundational technical risk or that middle block on the very bottom level. Um, so that's how I think about that. You know, So I try to avoid companies that have those foundational technical risk that I can identify. Um, and so far, none of the companies I've recommended have that. But I do consider double-stranded breaks to potentially be a foundational technical risk for investors to keep in mind. Okay, Max. So that's pretty deep analysis, by the way. Uh, I, forgive me as I'm going to go back and drink three cups of coffee and rewatch that three <laughs> or four more times to make sure I understood everything you're saying. But let's let's give this a concrete example for investors. Right now that we kind of understand everything that Max talked about, everything that he talked about, the foundational science and the risks that are involved, let's make this real and what this actually could mean for you as an investor. And I think a great example of this is Intellia. It's a company that you and I are both familiar with, Max. Ticker on that is NTLA. And this is what I think we can consider one of those first generation gene editing companies, right? It's got an approach that showed a lot of promise for treating a condition called transthyretin amyloidosis. This is a buildup of proteins you do not want to have in the liver. And it kills people. It's very serious within a couple of years of, of spotting this. And Intellia has found a way to do gene editing using the CRISPR-Cas9 as the, uh, as the mechanism um, to actually go in and address this, to stop that protein from building up. And it's shown an incredible initial results, right? Definitely reduction of the TTR protein that was building up in the liver. Uh, but Max, that's not the whole story, right? We saw a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of optimism on these initial results. But to your point, we can't look at that in a vacuum. We can't have our blinders on where we only look at the optimistic part of this because we need to understand some of those downstream risks that may be present with something like this. I know that you've spoken up in the past about Intellia. Are there some risk with, with this with this company? Uh, just We don't need to go too, too into the trenches of it, but are there things that you don't love about what we previously were so optimistic about? And then also more generally, when you see something like this, where it is a red flag that might be out there, how do you think about that as an investor? Is it easy for a company to change course after it's already uh, committed to a certain mechanism and approach? Yes, yeah, so we saw that those initial results came out over the weekend in, uh, in late June at a medical conference. Uh, so the first six patients were treated, a couple different dosing levels, looked really good. Pretty good safety results uh, from the treatment at 28 days. Pretty good protein reduction levels for the middle dose. Uh, so that looked good. Investors are excited because Intellia Therapeutics has designed its entire technology platform to be pretty modular. Um, so given how well it performed, even though it's only six patients, investors in Wall Street kind of, I think correctly as well, read through like, well, if it works here, we just swap a couple different things out and we can try it for any other gene in the liver um, and maybe have the same results or similar results. So I think it is correct to read through, even though it's very early, into some of those other programs and maybe start thinking, wow, you know, this could be a pretty big pipeline. Maybe there's a lot of commercial potential here. Um, but yeah, those double-stranded breaks are a risk. So, um, and this is a great example uh, to, to bring up. So for this specific disease, the TTR gene is really only expressed in the liver. Um, so where gene expression takes place is very important to consider. If the liver is only responsible for half of the, this gene's expression, and we knocked it out in the liver, which is the only place that gene editing can get to right now, then we'd actually only reduce a patient's expression of this gene by 50%. That might not be enough to actually, you know, reduce the aggregation of this mutated protein enough uh, to have a therapeutic benefit. But because it's all in the liver, and we can knock it out pretty precisely, um, that kind of makes sense. So that's why we saw some of these good results. But the TTR gene is one of the only transporters in the human body of vitamin A, and we need that for vision. 
Um, so even though we knocked out and disabled that gene from being expressed, um, patients who have had this treatment will need daily vitamin A supplementation for the rest of their life. They might have trouble with night blindness. They might not be able to drive a car at night or in low light levels. Um, so it's not a it's very different from a precise correction. So it's important to point that out. And additionally, um, patients in with this disease tend to be older. They're in their fifth or sixth or later decades of life. And the older you get, the less efficient your DNA repair mechanisms are. So again, that's not a great mix when you're making a double-stranded break. Um, these patients might already be at a higher risk for cancer, and they might not be able to make that repair from the drug candidate as efficiently. So, you know, these are things that we might only find out years later. This drug could get approved on the market, and then maybe this worrisome cancer, cancer signal shows up. So uh, those are some of the risks to keep in mind. You mentioned how easy might it be to pivot. And we have seen Intelia wisely start to invest in base editing tools. So all of their platform today, both ex vivo and in vivo programs, are you know using that first generation gene editing approach. They need to make double-stranded breaks. But they are developing some of those second generation base editing tools as well. We've only seen published data on that uh, for an ex vivo approach. So meaning they're using base editors to design cell therapies. Um, I imagine they would eventually want to work those into in vivo tools as well. Um, but you know, if double-stranded breaks become a really big deal and a big regulatory hurdle, or the FDA just says, no way, Jose, you can't do this, everyone's going to have to pivot to those second and third generation approaches or something else um, that doesn't, is not involved with like how we consider DNA editing today. So, you know, that would be a very bad day to be an investor. I think, um, you know, even like if that happened today, you know, I don't know what Intelli is worth. It was at like $12 billion recently. But if that happened like tomorrow and the company had to retool and pivot, even though it has a lot of cash, even though it can move to base editing, that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. I mean, what would the company might not be worth one or $2 billion at that point. So um, again, these are those big, hairy, technical foundational risks. Uh, just to keep in mind, it, it might not mean anything. Maybe we just say, oh, you know what? Um, we're not seeing this risk of cancer or in some diseases, at least there's no other treatments that make sense. Uh, but here, at least for this lead drug candidate, this is the drug candidate um, that's maybe going to go up head to head with alnylam in RNAi. Um, and alnylam's already gotten, you know, patients to have reversal of disease, pretty convenient uh, dosing schedules. It's going to get more convenient over time. Um, so even if Intelli's drug reaches the market, I mean, um, alnylam already has a pretty, pretty great option available for patients. So and that could also affect the regulatory decisions as well, right? If there's this looming risk of maybe double-stranded breaks are, are too great of a risk, you know, there's no pressure from regulators to approve these things to get patients treatments because treatments already exist. So you do have to kind of keep that in mind too. That's a, maybe in the category of a regulatory or commercial risk. Um, but yeah, so I mean, Intelli is a very great approach in terms of its uh, how it, it's very methodical and how it's developing its pipeline, very modular approach that could scale very well, uh, but it's still very early and we're going to need some long-term safety data to really, um, really be able to put this this technical risk to bed. Well, this has been a fantastic show, as I expected that it would at the beginning of the program. <laughs> kind of going full circle and talking about everything that we discussed and tying it back to how Max described at the beginning of the program of how he likes to think about investing. There's a lot of promise in the future of gene editing and gene editing, excuse me, a lot of promise in the future of base editing and prime editing and all the other things that Max had described. But of course, there's optimistic opportunities that we see out there. The in vivo announcement from Intelli was, uh, was met very positively by the stock market when they announced those. 
But then again, just a week ago, we didn't even talk about this on the show, but Allergene Therapeutics, tick on that A-L-L-O, if you followed that story, fell 44% in a single day as a lot of its approach uh, for cellular therapy, gene, I'm sorry, genetic therapy for CAR T therapies uh, was not as promising as the market was expecting it to be. And it's got a lot of things on hold. There's a lot of volatility in this space. We need to make sure that we're optimistic about the opportunities, but also always mindful that things could not go as well as they initially look. Back to Max's point at the beginning of the program, uh, less than 10% commercialization rate for early stage drugs. You have to keep that in mind. It's okay to place a lot of bets in this field, but definitely don't go all in on one company that's early stage trials because the uh, numbers are working against you of taking too large of a bet on an early stage company. Uh, but then kind of altogether, like Max said, it's it's okay to look at things over time. You don't have to just look at one, one point in time as an investor. Uh, he likes to look at the therapies. He likes to look at the approaches. He likes to look at the de-risking events, the collaborative partnership per, partnerships, the cash on hand, and the different programs as companies evolve over time as they learn more and more about the human genome. Max, I had a lot of fun. This is one of my favorite topics ever to talk about. Thanks very much for being part of 7investing now. All right. Thanks for having me. Hopefully I explained things kind of all right. I tried to throw in enough analogies there with Jenga and elephants and cauldrons. So hopefully that worked. They were fantastic. I will be rewatching the show three more times. Highly caffeinated to make sense of all of it. Thanks to Sam Bailey, our director of marketing, also for producing today's show. We hope you enjoyed this live stream edition of 7investing now. And we look forward to you tuning into future episodes. Looking forward to welcoming all of our 7investing subscribers on this Friday to our subscriber call where you can ask us about any of our previous recommendations. Once again, I'm Simon Erickson. Thanks for tuning into this show. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.